Okay, City Limits, and it's uh, just that bit about the smog, by the way. I Coming back um, to Melbourne last week, I was away for a week, uh, and once you got to see the silhouette of Melbourne in the distance, all you could see was smog, by the way. So you'd be pleased to know, while it seemed to be a clear day, Melbourne was in fact covered in smog, speaking of oh dear. that introduction. So that was it. That was, that was a week ago today. Um, OK, I'm Kevin Healy, and that was uh, Zeb Peak, who's O-daring. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got Karina with us, who's going to be involved in today's program. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, today, of course, it is Transport Day. We're going to go pretty quickly now, because there was that, the um, lockout of workers in Sydney Monday last week. Uh, the transport workers, if you recall, and the Prime Minister and the, and the State Minister got stuck into them, the Union and the Labor Party over it and just forgot to fact-check and realised they actually weren't on strike after all. They were actually locked out. And we did plan to do an interview today with a railway of, with an official from the Union, but seeing Annie McLaughlin did one last Saturday uh, on back on... Um, on Solidarity Breakfast, with I thought, well, she's done exactly what we were going to do, so why waste it? We'll uh, going to repeat that inter- <laughs> going to repeat that interview in a minute, and then I'm going to maybe just quote some of the comments that Morrison and the minister made, and then Karina's going to read out a wonderful statement the union put out subsequently. So um, that's the start of the that's the first half of the program. John McPherson's going to come on; he'll probably want to comment on that as well. Um, but also, of course, John, our regular transport commentator, will talk about lots of other things to do with transport in the second half. Um, our Prime Minister's come down with coronavirus, uh, with COVID. Oh, has he? Yeah. Um, Little do I know. Yeah. yeah. Look, the only other comment I want to make for the week, because we will go straight to this, but I, I thought it worth mentioning the sheer hypocrisy. I mean, I've got, you know, what, what's, what Russia is doing is dreadful. Putin is dreadful. But the hypocrisy of those attacking him, uh, you know, we, we had the night before America invaded Iraq, uh, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Melbourne. When they said march, we couldn't march because the start of the march was already at the end of the march and uh, <laughs> it was so big and yet yeah. the Herald Sun didn't give it one line as it, as, they, as it screamed that we had to go to war and attack these terrible terrorists. Now, every time there's any sort of protest against Russia, it gets all over page after page. Um, and I just want to highlight the sheer hypocrisy of those who would attack anybody at will attacking somebody else for doing it, not that it justifies what Russia's doing. It's terrible, but the hypocrisy of Australia, the United States and all the others is just because they they do it all the time. Even looking at the international mass media as well, um, you see news reports everywhere. Like I've I've seen several on the internet of of commentators and experts, uh, so-called experts, saying stuff like, no, these are blonde, blue-eyed people, these are middle-class people, these aren't from some developing country, mm. they're not. And it's and it's just like, well, what, because airstrikes happen in, right. in Africa or in the Middle East, yes. that somehow justifies them and, and makes, you know, pretty blonde refugees with, with good jobs, like, somehow more worthy than others. And, the, U- um, and the US, which, of course, bars itself from going before a war crimes tribunal immediately starts calling and talking about war crimes uh, while, in fact, Julian Assange is in jail because mm-hmm. he exposed their war crimes. And yeah. in, in, a, in a case this week, uh, a, a, a former SAS bloke was told not to answer a question because it could, it could be, a, you know, be a war crime situation. And so we, our war crimes, which have been exposed as well by a, by a judge and a tribunal, 
um, no one's yet been charged at all. So, um, yeah, it's um, it's the pot calling the kettle. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, on I'll, I'll pour what, some tea while you're talking. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, yeah, on what Karina was saying, I actually saw this morning um, something from Al Jazeera about, um, like, African students, I think, in the Ukraine not being able to... Uh, not being able to leave or not being allowed into neighbouring countries. Um, I don't know much about that story, but it seems really sus. Um, and, yeah, I don't really, like, know enough about geopolitics to say anything, but um, I do know that there are anal- analysts and people like Noam Chomsky and things that um, are pointing out the West's... Um, role to play in like what's what's happening now and um the expansion of nato and things yep. that have well, affected glad it. you mentioned noam chomsky because um he comes up in in morrison's comment believe it or not but i'll, oh, we'll, we'll okay. get to that later okay you want to introduce them yes. we'll go to this interview yes let's go to it so it's annie mclaughlin um and she's interviewing Stuart prince who's the executive director of the rail tram and bus union rtbu um getting an update on the hashtag fake strike of transport workers in New South Wales. So let's have a listen. The RBTU in New South Wales have been um, working on the EBA for quite a long time and have done some rolling actions, but nothing as severe as a full-on strike, correct? Correct, and we still haven't still haven't run a strike, to be honest. Uh, it's been an incredible week and certainly the first time in my experience of working for a trade union that workers have been accused of striking when they actually turned up for work. So tell us about the day. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so essentially the the union notified Sydney Trains of planned industrial actions on the 9th of February, and they were low-level industrial actions that we believe wouldn't have a material impact on services. Um, but then the New South Wales government dragged the RCBU into the Fair Work Commission late last week in an attempt to stop workers from taking those actions. And after failing to get the outcome that it wanted from the commission, Sydney Trains proceeded late at night on Sunday night into the early hours of Monday morning to shut down its entire network. So our members turned up to work on Monday and they weren't allowed to do anything. And while they were stuck in their middle rooms, the New South Wales Minister for Transport, David Elliott, and the Prime Minister both went on commercial radio in Sydney to falsely tell the public that Sydney trains weren't on running, weren't running because workers were on strike. And in fact, Minister Elliott then went as far as to saying that the, the actions of workers amounted to terrorist-like activity. And this perception that the shutdown was was caused by workers was reinforced by notices that were stuck up at train stations that repeated the lie that the shutdown was caused by industrial action, when in reality, the shutdown was a decision that was made deliberately by the state government itself. My God, that's so incredibly underhanded, isn't it? Like I said, I've I've never seen something like this uh, in... Uh, in 13 years of working in the, the trade union movement, normally when uh, when unions go on strike, we own it. It's, an, it's a legitimate industrial tactic. Uh, but in, in our industry, uh, we make sure that we give passengers advance notice when we're taking that sort of action because we know that, that industrial action on the public transport network 
has consequences for commuters and for the public and we need to give them time to make alternative arrangements. So this happened at very short notice. Commuters had no warning whatsoever and they were understandably angry about it and they took out that anger, unfortunately, on our members. So can you go back to the Fair Work Commission and tell us what was actually uh, at dispute? Why did they take you to the Fair Work Commission? So the actions that we uh, we had filed included a ban on altered working, which is essentially a form of work to rule, whereby workers uh, stick to what they are rostered to do and don't take on extra unrostered work during the day. And as I said, our view was that this would have caused minimal disruption to services, especially given that the employer had two weeks' notice to ensure that enough staff were rostered on to deliver the timetable as planned. But uh, we subsequently have found out that the, um, the Transport for New South Wales had privately drawn up plans to shut down the network on the basis that it believed though, uh, those industrial actions would represent a safety risk. Uh, it's worth noting that the claim about a safety risk was never mentioned to the RTBU in the two weeks between us notifying the action and the fair work hearing and we didn't get an opportunity to sit down with them and, and talk about their concerns and, and work out in a resolution because our, our union certainly takes rail safety incredibly seriously. It's, it's uh, always our top priority and we would never uh, deliberately take an industrial action that would put safety at risk. In fact, uh, the RBTU during the COVID uh, situation was actually on the front foot in regards to safety, uh, while Transport New South Wales was a little bit behind, I'd have to say. Certainly in regards to our members on the bus network in particular, I think our buses were at the forefront of arguing for uh, the need for passengers to be wearing masks. Uh, and in this dispute as well, a, a core part of our claim in the industrial dispute behind um, this week's uh, shutdown, if you like, is the fact that we want to make sure that hygiene uh, and cleanliness is maintained on the, on the rail network. I think the COVID crisis has really put a spotlight on the importance of maintaining cleanliness and hygiene on public transport. And we want to make sure that those operations are kept in-house in Sydney trains and that uh, hygiene and cleanliness is not sacrificed uh, for cost-cutting purposes. So you're right, it's safety is critical to uh, our not only our industrial claims, but what we do to make sure that workers and and public transport passengers are, are kept safe. And we find the whole argument that's been put forward this week that our actions would have constituted a safety risk, frankly, to be quite insulting. The other thing is, um, can you give us some idea about what are the sticking points in regards to the EBA? Why is it so difficult for... Uh, New South Wales Transport to actually come up with uh, a working plan? 
the EBA negotiations should have been dragging on for a long time and, and the agreement expired in the middle of last year. The reason I think that it's become so complicated is we've got to the point in New South Wales where we're not just arguing over pay, we're, we're really fighting for the future of passenger rail services in New South Wales. And among the sticking points in the negotiations are privatisation. We want a commitment that no train services or lines will be lost in the event of uh, privatisation. Safety, we want to guarantee that any changes to services will leave those services as safe or safer. And hygiene, we want a commitment to maintain the existing level of hygiene using good full-time jobs. So we're really going for... Uh, our claims are not just about workers' conditions. We want Our claims are about the future of the network and ensuring that the people of New South Wales are served by a safe, reliable... Uh, and publicly owned public transport system that operates in their interest. The um, what happened on the day? Uh, I mean, people turned up to work, but and you said they weren't able to work. Did what? Did they hire security guards? No, they were. Uh, our members were just told basically to to sit around in meal rooms and wait for further advice. So we had thousands of workers. Idle and getting paid, which was extraordinary, and and watching the news and seeing themselves being maligned by politicians, uh, and listening to people talk about how they were on strike, it was an extraordinary situation, uh, and very frustrating for our members because, as a you know, if, if they were on strike, they would have been out the front with placards, they would have been they would have been on picket lines and and demonstrating and making their voices heard, but instead they were, but uh, they actually felt as if they'd been pushed aside and hidden while politicians were lying about what was going on and misrepresenting them. And I think you, some of that frustration came out when our members uh, took it upon themselves to set the record straight and we held a, a press conference that morning at Central Station where our, our branch secretary, Alex, Alex Classens, got up and forcefully made the point that workers weren't on strike uh, and he was surrounded by workers in their in their work gear, uh, in their, their uniforms, and they were quite prepared to stand up in front of the, the cameras and, and to say the truth and say that what politicians were saying about them was simply wrong. So who told them to go to the... Um meal rooms so is there a what sort of structure uh, the, is there uh it, it was uh instruction from sydney trains bosses through their their management uh which is through the management structure that came down to to our rank and file members and and, and workers they turned up but I, I, I it wasn't uh a case of yeah, the um like train stations and depots being boarded up or, or locked up. It was simply uh, a management directive that no services were to run. So, so hence that that was why um, they were actually on site. They were sitting around in the mill rooms and as I said, they were still getting paid. Um, so this is actually a publicity stunt, isn't it? This is to undermine the general public's support for the workers on the railways and the buses. And I think it's really hard to, to 
to work out what was going on. And it's, it's hard to see any sort of sensible strategy from the government as to what this was about. And I'm not sure if the people running Sydney trains are just monstrously incompetent and couldn't be trusted running a game of Connect Four, let alone a complicated urban rail system, or if there is something more sinister and pre-planned behind it all. And if it really was a planned industrial and political strategy, I'd have to say that it has, it has backfired on the state government. We've already learned this week that transport agencies have actually been preparing for a shutdown for two weeks. So that, that does indicate that there was a degree of planning behind this. And in fact, they had a, had prepared a detailed brief of evidence about the impact of an extended shutdown to present to the Fair Work Commission. So it is implausible to think that the minister and his office did not have any idea that a shutdown was on the table. But at the end of the day, I think we all want answers as to what actually happened and why it happened. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on the state government and the transport agencies over the coming weeks about this. So where does it leave you guys now? What's, what's happening now? Well, we're back negotiating again. And ironically, the, the system uh, should be back up and running on Monday to the timetable that was, was planned. And the industrial actions that we were intending to take are still on the table. So, so the, far from the safety risk that was being uh, proclaimed uh, this Monday, next Monday the same industrial actions will be in place and the system will be operating as per normal, which casts, I would say, some doubt on the claims of uh, safety Armageddon that the government were putting forward earlier this week. So in that regard, we're glad that rail services will be back up and running. We're glad that our members will be back at work. But now we get back into the hard slog of negotiating again. And out of this week, the the Transport Minister has actually made commitments that he will negotiate uh, with us on the issues that we've raised. And we're hopeful that out of all of this, we've actually... Uh, got over over something of a hill, and that now we can get down and get some some proper outcomes out of the EDA process, and that the government will take our claim seriously, and and hopefully we'll be in a position to go back to our members relatively soon uh, with um, an agreement that that would uh, that they will consider. But at this stage, uh, that's that's still a hope. We still have a lot of work to do, and and we're back at the negotiating table. Have there been calls for the transport minister to resign? Yes, there have. They certainly have, and he has some pretty serious questions to to answer. Uh, during the week, he claimed that um, he had no say in the decision to shut down the network. He said that the decision was made purely by transport bureaucrats and that they made it uh, in the middle of the night while he was asleep. Oh, how shocking. Uh, as, as, so, there's been a real failure in ministerial responsibility and accountability, and that's not how the Westminster system is meant to work. When it comes to such a, a significant decision about how a uh, you know, uh, metropolitan city the size of Sydney operates and the importance of its public transport network. For a minister to say, well, I had no say in it because it's purely an operational 
matter is just outrageous and the minister needs to understand that that's his job. It's his job to make these decisions. But it's actually hard to reconcile what's gone on and his his insistence that he had no say in it. Um, I think there will be a lot of scrutiny over the next few weeks to see if his office was aware of what was going on and how much of a role they played in the preparations for what actually occurred late on Sunday night and early on Monday morning. It is very interesting. We've got a Prime Minister who does this on a regular basis and we've had things like uh, the sale of uh, land at exorbitant prices under Fletcher, who then said that uh, uh, it was all the bureaucrats' fault, he had nothing to do with it. Uh, I mean, this seems to be, and now this kind of thing coming out of the uh, Liberals in New South Wales seems to be a theme, really. And we shouldn't forget the role that the Prime Minister played in this. Uh, he was very quickly onto commercial radio in Sydney to reinforce the point that had been made by David Elliott that the rail shutdown was caused by a strike by workers. He then, several hours later, made the point again, even more forcefully, at a media doorstop in Tasmania. Uh, and he even went as far as linking the you know, fake strike to you can expect to see more of this under a Labor government to try and turn it into a political attack. And, and that in itself makes us suspicious that there was a degree of political planning behind what happened uh, and that it may well have been orchestrated as a, uh, an attempt to smear workers and to smear unions and to smear the Labor Party. And also notice he was in a doorstop in Tasmania, conveniently out of New South Wales. Conveniently out, out of New South Wales. Since then, I should note that a lot of our members, because the, the, the shutdown was, um, was implemented so quickly and because communities didn't have a chance to make any preparations, there was a lot of community anger over what had happened and that anger was directed at, at our members. We've had instances of members being uh, abused, of being racially abused, uh, of being physically assaulted in at least one opportunity. And, and I can tell you that in our union office, we've had many threatening and abusive messages and phone calls, including death threats. So this, the, the language that was used by the New South Wales Minister, the New South Wales Premier and by the Prime Minister was highly inflammatory and it had real world, world consequences for our members. And we have demanded that those politicians apologise for the language they use and the consequences that their words had for our members. We have heard nothing back from the Prime Minister. He has completely ignored the issue and uh, he's burying his head in the stand and basically hoping that the smear sticks. It's, it's extremely disappointing, uh, but we are getting on with the job, doing our best to represent our members. Uh, and fighting the good fight and we'll continue to apply pressure to the state government and to the federal government, uh, not only to deliver uh, a fair and reasonable enterprise agreement for our members, but to ensure that uh, public transport services for the people of New South Wales and, and, and all the other states around Australia where we represent public transport workers, we want to ensure that those services deliver what 
communities need. And at the same time, we want to see politicians who are actually prepared to tell the truth. And we didn't see that this week. It must be a mistake here because, you know, you know it, like I said, it, it genuine, at first it genuinely looked like a conspiracy and a setup. And I thought, no, that can't be right. I must be missing something because not, not even... Not even these guys would stoop so low. I'm missing something here. It wasn't until the end of Monday, and I was sort of watching the, it all play out in the news, that, that actually happened. This it, it, it was real. It's, not, it's you don't, yeah. I'm seeing seeing them spring out of the blocks and so quickly go to that sort of outrageous rhetoric about terrorists and strikes and holding the city for ransom. It, it, it's and and then to and then for the truth to come out that it, it wasn't a strike at all, it was a, a lockout. Yeah, it's, even with Qantas, I mean, at least with, with Qantas, but they owned it. They they they, they weren't. You know, they didn't lie about the fact they were locking out their workers. They were quite you know, open about it. it was an industrial strategy. So how this week's been really strange. Thanks very much for talking to me, Stuart. You're listening to 3CR um, City Limits and that was a recorded interview um, uh, from Annie McLaughlin from Saturday Breakfast interviewing Stuart Prince, the Executive Director of the RTBU on the hashtag fake strike of transport workers in New South Wales. Um, Kevin, I think you have a few things to say well, about that. Yes, given that the um, given that it was a lockout and not a strike, unfortunately the, the Prime Minister forgot to do a fact check and he said in fact that um, this shows this was a sign of what to expect under Labor. If people want to hand the country to unions under a Labor government, led by the most left-wing Labor leader in 50 years since Gough Whitlam, and that's probably being a bit unkind to Gough Whitlam, you might have to go back further, this is what they can expect. This is what Labor think they can get away with when they think they're going to win an election. Imagine what they'd be like if they actually won it. Oh, my God. He also said... The trade union movement and, by extension, Labor are a threat to national security. And he quoted a recent Zoom meeting in which the Manufacturing Workers Union National Secretary Steve Murphy joined um, the aforementioned US author and activist, they call him, but we all know who he is, Noam Chomsky. What a terrible person he is, people, <laughs> in condemning the AUKUS nuclear submarine pact. I mean, how more... How more perfidious can you get than that? I mean, P Peter Peter Dutton will be losing sleep every night over this one. Um, <laughs> so, I mean... Hates ex the country. An extraordinary comment. Just a pity that, that Scott didn't do his fact-finding and discover that, in fact, the strike that he's he carried on about was not a strike. They were locked out. And the New South Wales Minister, a bloke called David Elliott, he accused the union of engaging in some sort of terrorist-like activity. Now, he had locked them out, so they must have been... It was They turned into terrorists because he locked them out. Um, this is nothing but political. It's no coincidence that 12 weeks before the federal election and 12 months before a state election, this is occurring. Now, he went to water overnight when the proverbial hit the fan, and by next day, he had dropped... He had dropped um, the case against the Fair Work Commission case against the union and on the advice of senior counsel, which meant, must have been that they weren't going to win it, and in a bid to encourage the union to return to um, normalised train services, he said the government made the decision not only in transparency but in goodwill, so he went to water quickly. But the union did respond, Karina, and you're going to read their very good response to all that. 
Yeah, I quite liked it. So it's it's incredibly well written. Um, this came out. <clears throat> excuse me. This came out last Wednesday. This came out last Wednesday during the evening. Sorry, I just need to clear my throat. <clears throat> Too much tea, Kevin. That's mm-hmm. what it does. <laughs> this is from Neil Diamond, the National Secretary of the RTBU, and it's an open letter. Dear Prime Minister. I write to you about your recent public statements regarding the Sydney Trains Network ceasing operations on Monday 21st of February 2022. In a radio interview on 2GB and again at a media conference several hours later in Tasmania, you falsely stated that the rail shutdown was caused by a quote-unquote strike by rail workers. Moreover, you provided commentary stating that the behaviour of workers was quote, just not how you behave and this is not how you treat your fellow citizens. Your comments were widely reported and gave the New South Wales community reason to believe that the rail shutdown was a deliberate and socially damaging act perpetrated by rail workers. As a result of your behaviour and that of your state colleagues, rail workers have since endured being spat on, sworn at and even assaulted by misinformed members of the public. To give you a flavour of the many reports of abuse we have received, a group of workers having coffee across from Lidcombe Station at 5am on Tuesday morning were approached by a member of the public who hurled verbal abuse at them, including racial slurs, and accused them of being terrorists. The man then approached our members, picked up a barrier from outside the coffee shop and used it to physically assault one of the workers. Our officers have also received abusive and threatening phone calls and emails such as, quote, and this is all in capitals, F you and F your protest. I'm coming for you. As such, I write to respectfully request that you correct the record by publicly apologising to rail workers for falsely claiming they were on strike and acknowledge without qualification that the decision to cancel services was made by Sydney Trains not by workers. I'm deeply concerned that without every effort being made to correct the record, rail employees and their representatives will remain at risk. Should you wish to go a step further, then I would welcome you for a tour of the Sydney Rail Network so that you can apologise to rail workers in person and talk to them directly about their experiences during the rail shutdown. Regards, Mark Diamond, National Secretary of the RTBU. Yeah, well, I, I, I presume he hasn't done that yet. Morrison hasn't yet apologised or gone. And no, no, of course not. Um, and um, I presume he won't. Um, but um, yeah, it's um, it's astonishing, isn't it, that they um, they just leap straight to those sort of conclusions. And 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 of course, I think because I'm sure we've got listeners out there who are totally bewildered when he said the most left wing Labor leader in 50 years. <laughs> I just want to assure you, he actually meant Anthony. Or- or Anthony Albanese. Yeah, I, I feel like that is a bit um, offensive to Gough Whitlam in the other way that, like, well, of I, course Gough right. Whitlam was more left-wing than Anthony well, Albanese. Well, I read a year and that wasn't really left either, but he, um, I, I read, there was an article about him last week in um, the glossy magazine that falls out of the Financial Review on the last Friday of the month, and two of the things they highlighted were he said he's, he's for reform, not revolution, as if we needed to be told, uh, Rosa Luxemburg. <laughs> bleed and uh, he also said he's courting the big end of town so that if he's if that's left wing imagine if he was right wing for God's sake. <laughs> um, okay look we'll get John McPherson on the line come back and we'll talk more transport yeah
And if COVID has shown anything, no government in Australia has had a planned approach to safety in terms of workers under COVID. Everything's been done knee-jerk. So whilst you've got market capitalism operating from a market perspective, we're only ever going to get knee-jerk things which involve huge exploitation, inequity and racism. None of these things are being planned or addressed in any long-term way. It's all stopgap and knee-jerk, and it is because of the role of the market. Subscribe to 3CR, workers' rights and union struggles. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR and we're just about to get John McPherson on the line to talk about um, this hashtag fake strike of the RTBU in New South Wales um, and other transport topics. Um, John, can you hear us? Yes, I'm right here. Hello, Great. everybody. Hello. How are you? Any comment on what we've just been playing? Well, it is. I mean, you know, you could hear the sort of the sense of stagger in the, in the in the voice of the union union guy couldn't you that just 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 sort of unbelievable the whole mm. the whole the whole extraordinary thing it, i mean it it um indicates what the extreme right wingers in the new south wales government would like to do doesn't it i mean it, it, it i can't believe that the that the the politicians weren't involved in it up to their eyeballs um in the you know getting getting the whole thing organised to happen, you know, yeah. and the day was important because it was the first day students were going back. It was the first yeah. day people were going back to work. Yeah. Uh, they timed it perfectly, to, and then to, yeah. to point the finger at the union, just a pity yeah. that you know they, the facts got out that in fact the union had nothing to do with it per se. Yeah, I mean it's it's it, I mean it, you know if that was if it was Victoria, there's absolutely no way the management of the railway system. Would dare do anything like that without without full consultation with the politicians, you know? So this pretense that it happened it happened without the politicians being involved. That's just you know, yeah. preposterous. Behind it also, I don't know if it's directly related in this case, but there is a dispute taking place within the bureaucracy in New South Wales, within the ministry uh-huh. and the, the transport department about privatisation yeah. issues. Yeah where you had two arms of the same body getting advice from KPMG 
yeah. one arguing yeah. that it, it makes sense, one that it doesn't make sense. And I think there's, there are internal disputes taking place mm. inside the transport ministry itself. So. Right, that as yeah. well. Yeah, well, that, that sort of just lets them off the hook a bit to say that, Kevin. <laughs> well, it does, but it, 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 well, it doesn't really. I mean, it just shows that, you know, they're, they're, because it's to do with privatisation well, and, well, yeah, and the system but anyway. Makes, it just makes yeah. them look, you know, disorganised and, yeah. and, you know, yeah. fairly silly, which I'm not, I'm not sure they, you know, they, they are necessarily disorganised and silly. They just know what they want to do mm. and they want to privatise. They don't care what effects it has or how, how difficult it is. That They just want to privatise, yeah. Yeah. All right, look, we, anything else to say on that or we'll move on to yeah, other well, issues? I just, I, this is um, just relating things to an overseas situation. In the UK, you know, where they've had a privatised rail system uh, with franchise operators for a long time, they're now moving back towards a government control system, you know, mm. that they've found after 20-odd years that it doesn't particularly work very well, you know? Mm-hmm. And governments, as usual with all these things, end up getting the backlash um, when, when the privatisation doesn't work because people, in the end, still, still turn back to government and say, hey, you're the guys who are really in charge, however much you want to pretend that privatisation means you're not. It just doesn't work like that. And so, um, you know, even the, um, you know, even the Boris government in Britain is having to, um, is having to, uh, you know, bring the system back under more direct government control. Yeah. yeah. Mm, that's interesting. But yeah, I yeah. think like another scary thing about it is that it's an example of how politicians can get away with or not, like, um, entirely get away with, but they can really say um, falsities, lies, like, quite outrageous things, um, and a lot of the public never hear the corrections. Um, And it's also that thing of just, like, if you say it out loud, like, people are going to think that, um, and they can really influence people. um, And so, yeah, they can, like, purposefully lie, get away with it, um, and have things go their way. <laughs> oh, well, that's, well, that, well, sure. I mean, they, they, they must have thought, oh, this, this, could, this can be wonderful for us politically. Um, but, but um, you know, the trouble is that it was so confected that even the right-wing media, in the end, you know, were con- you know aren't convinced that it wasn't a union, um, you mm-hmm. know, a union plot. It was, it was, the ma- it was management and politicians. Mm-hmm. You know, well, your other point too. I was going to, ra- wasn't going to raise it today per se, but the um, as we know, they've given a fifty-year lease of Melbourne Port, uh, Melbourne Ports to private company to run the port mm-hmm. rather than the state. And the mm-hmm. fir- just recently, the Auditor General brought out a report to say that after the first, I think it's the first five years of the contract. Um, they they failed to meet the the metrics they were supposed to meet that the the efficiency standards are just not there that they promised right. and uh, and you know they and, and the and the government saying you've got to, you know they've already leased it out but yeah you've got to lift your game so to speak but what yeah. the auditor general saying is that the inefficiencies could lead to everyone having to pay higher prices for goods because of the inefficiency of the people now running the port the privately running the port so. You know, again, it's the same thing. Once yeah, you privatise yeah. it, it becomes less efficient. In fact, well, uh, yeah, and 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 of course, the um, 
the privateers, whatever they promised when they signed up, they want to make bigger profits. So they're always going to drift towards you know, a form of management of the situation that, that provides them with higher profits, which you know, can often mean that the port is less efficient because the, the throughput isn't, isn't um, as great. You know, it, but of course then, oh yeah, but there's, there's, there's swings and roundabouts and all this, of course, but, but um, I would, my guess would be that the private operator of the port may well not be spending the investment funds that they promised to spend either on the port, you know. Not a bad guess, John. Not a bad guess. I would have thought. <laughs> Those sort of things tend to happen. Yeah. Tend to happen too, you know. Because um, why would they want? They don't want to spend any more than they absolutely have to. Uh, and they were, you know, they can usually find excuses for why they, they're not spending up. They would probably use COVID as a major one at the moment, and they'll probably use COVID for the next decade as a, as an excuse for why they they haven't invested the money in in the system that they promised they would. Things mm. like that. Yeah. And COVID, of course, John. Just moving on. COVID is uh, one of the reasons that you can't come into the studio at the moment because of yeah. rules here with three CR. But when you can come back into the studio, yeah, I've yeah. got the perfect way for you to get here. We're a man of, man of your means because um, I mentioned earlier the glossy Friday thing in the Finn Review. Well, they also reviewed the latest Rolls-Royce Ghost Black Badge just out. And <laughs> you can snap this one up, John, as tested drive away. So there's not even on-road costs above this for, for a million and 30,000. So if you've got a million and 30,000, a million and 30, you can get so you can drive down here and that and oh. park it out the back here. Wow. Uh, is it electric? I oh, want electric. <laughs> no, 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 this one, uh, this one has uh, three fifty-nine grams per kilogram or something of CO two. Oh, okay. So. Well, it's but they have done. They are bringing out an electric by the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it'll definitely be um, definitely be petrol, and it'll probably have a V a V twelve engine in it. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. It's all in, it's all in there, so I won't bother it's going all, into that it's detail. It's all highly theoretical, Kevin. Yeah. For the likes of you and me. But for the more simple computer, uh, commuter, not computer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very simple on computers, but commuters. Um, the Cranbourne line is going to get 50 extra services now, John, because they've mm-hmm. duplicated the line um, uh, beyond Dangnong, of course, um, from yep. Lindbrook and Marinda Park stations. Um, that seems to be something of a positive, although it's every 10-minute service, but they've also got the Packenham line coming in through there, haven't they? So could get it could get a bit <laughs> oh, crowded, can Stop asking the hard questions. Oh, sorry, okay. <laughs> yes, right. Well, yes, well, that's, that's the issue. The whole, particularly the line coming in from the south, the south, where, uh, southeast, sorry, from, from um, uh, Dandenong and then from the whole, um, 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 you know, uh, country areas beyond. What am I trying to say? Uh, you know, from, from Gippsland... That whole area, is, uh, everything's meant to run on a, just a two tracks into the city, which means that um, that um, country reg, regional country trains and freight trains have to share the same two tracks as the uh, as the suburban trains. And of course, the the suburban trains they're running more of them now these days because of all the development down around. Um, down around um, you know Cranbourne and all that area. Mm. Uh, that means that uh, they're all trying to squeeze onto the same two tracks. And that means that, of course, um, the regional trains end up running slowly because they're, they're stuck between the, um, the um, 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 suburban trains. 
and it's pretty hard to it's pretty hard to get round that issue unless you run fewer you know many fewer trains all up and of course they're wanting to run more trains um it's 50 trains an hour 50 trains a week sorry that means that's some um, oh 10 trains uh, 10 trains a week day you know monday to friday and they they'd be counting each that means five extra trains in the morning peak and five extra trains in the afternoon peak. Well, of course, the peak hours are already when the rail lines are congested because they want to run more suburban trains and they want to run more, you know, regional trains out, mm. you know, out to the out to Gippsland and the uh, the valley and on to um, places like Bansdale and Torralgon. So, you know, you really end up with a very a very a very busy rail line. And um, everything running slowly because the suburban trains, of course, want to service the suburban stations, you know, Dandenong through to Pakenham, but also the trains divert off at Dandenong going going south to Cranbourne as well, and we're going to have a whole lot more of those. And down the line, John, of course, they've only yeah. in the last two or three years they've they've done yeah. that that uh, overhead. Yes. Um, the raising of the of the railway line over what the old level crossings, yeah, uh, so right. that that would make it much more difficult now to put extra lines in, would it not? Well, unless they've made allowances in their design work, yes, it would. And uh, I, I, I don't think anybody's seeing any evidence that they've made any allowances in their design work for putting in another pair of tracks. Um, so when they, if they come back later and they want to put in another pair of tracks. You know, it means more disruption than there might have been if the if the um, the project at least had allowed for this, another set of tracks when they were when they were doing the um, the uh, level crossing elimination. Um, I mean, something that occurs to me is that you know they've now all over the city they've done. I think it's over 50 level crossings have gone with um, the level crossing elimination. Uh, and all those projects have been done really on the basis of improving things for the motor car, not not improving things for the way the the rail system works. Mm-hmm. And each of those elimination projects has cost you know many million, many well hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, quite a few hundreds of millions. I think mm-hmm. I think somewhere like two hundred and fifty million, something like that, which is an incredible amount of money. But then you think about value for money and where it, where it was needed. Maybe if they'd really been thinking things through in a longer longer lead time, they would have decided to spend less money on on removing so many level crossings and spend that money instead on putting in at least another pair of tracks from um, from um, Caulfield down to uh, Dandenong. Mm. At least that would have been a start in dealing with the issues of the. Um, of the regional, you know, the regional corridor to um, to Gippsland, um, and really, the you know the the Melbourne Metro Tunnel does really nothing for that because it, it's in an area where where there already was quite a lot of um, rail, rail lines, you know, like the four tracks from um, Caulfield up to South Yarra, where the Melbourne Metro Tunnel starts. That hasn't been boosted. That remains the same four tracks. Mm-hmm. And they're just diverting some of the trains off that line just before South Yarra and sending them, you know, over under the city on new tracks and then popping up on the other side of the city to go back on the um, 
the tracks that exist over there. But at least on the western side, there, there's going to be um, the pair of um, tracks going out to from from um, from Southern Cross to um, we hope anyhow. We'd like. Well, I suppose it is only a hope at the moment that there'll be another set of tracks going out from um, Southern Cross to um, to Sunshine, because out that side you have the same sort of issues. Where you have you know lots of suburban trains and lots of regional trains, you know. Mm. I was going to come to Sunshine next, in fact, because yeah, okay. they yeah. have announced they got there will be a new regional platform by twenty twenty nine. Yeah, as part of its transport. So that must mean there's going yeah. to be an extra line, I assume, as part of well, its transformation. No, no, is, that an, is that a bad assumption, John? <laughs> doesn't have to be a whole new line. No, just you know, just another platform where trains can stop. You know, oh, yeah. all right. So like that, a loop. You know, take really. that one back. It's, but, it's still, it's still, it'll, it'll be certainly be necessary. That's for sure. Yeah, well, it does uh, say there that uh, seven commercial properties would have to be compulsory acquired for it. So. Um, but they, what, the bit I found interesting was it says that um, the project adds to previously announced upgrades, including yeah. extending existing regional platforms to accommodate longer nine-car velocity trains mm. and a new second concourse to make transfers easier between metropolitan, regional and airport services. Now, mm. I've noted, i marked that because I thought, let's hope that the so-called uh, simple transfer, easier transfers aren't anything like they've got a Footscray station or Southern Cross station where it's almost impossible to know what's going on. <laughs> oh, you want easy, easy as well as... Um, well, it says easier. Clear, easier, clear, maybe clear it's easier than what? That's the point, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so what happens at... Tell me about Footscray. What, what well, Footscray there? is quite messy. It's um, like... You know, the trains going, if you get off and want to get a train, say, back into the city, or as I mm. often do, get off a train from the coast and um, get a oh, train yeah. to North Melbourne to get the upfield line back. So mm. you get off the country train at Footscray rather than Southern Cross. Yeah. Um, then there's two platforms, but you've got to know the, which one is the, ne- the ne- soonest train the, um, mm-hmm. going to going. But then you've got to go up the top to find out. And then when you get there, one platform, you've actually got to leave the station and come back in again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a ridiculous layout. Uh, platform one, which is the one out nearest the road, um, yep, yep. you've got to actually go out and come back. To, oh, to get into okay. it, I okay. mean, it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's okay. a very bad design. So that that yeah, that lovely overbridge that, that that's been upgraded many times at Footscray, it dumps you on the footpath, and then you yeah, have to come back right. around. That's, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's patently silly, particularly when when the information about which platform you have to be on isn't isn't uh, probably most of the time it's not up to date, and you really you're really taking pot luck about which platform you go to. Would that be right? Yeah, that's about mm-hmm. right. That's right. You generally yeah, get up yeah. there in time to sort of see what time the next one's going as it's pulling yeah. in, and yeah. you know, you, yeah. and you've got no hope of getting there. Yeah. Yeah. Zeb's yeah, nodding; she obviously knows it. Well, I think yeah, this well, is more my fault, but I did, um, I did used to live near Footscray a while back, right. and like hop on um, trains at Fo- Footscray like late at night when I was uh-huh. flustered and like trying to do a quick changeover, and then realised I was going in the opposite direction <laughs> to what I wanted. <laughs> Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, that's... it shouldn't. You shouldn't be your fault, though. It should be it, the layer, Everything should be, you know, so plain and predictable that you can virtually do it in your sleep. That would be. Yeah. That would be nice. That, that would be ideal. How, well, that's how good. That's how good systems are. You know, it's 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 really coherent and and 
and easy. And, you know, then, and I keep reassuring you on good systems with information, yes, you are going the right way, you know, keep going this way, you know, all that sort of thing. And, of course, if, if it's going to take some time to get to the, the platform for the next train, really what you want is the train after that, isn't it? You mm-hmm. want to know where that's going to go from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, that's when you don't only tell people about the next train, you tell them about the train after that. Uh, but that, I think, would be beyond beyond the Met. That would be too much to ask for. Yeah. yeah the, silence yeah. at the <laughs> Yeah, well... Yeah. yeah, there were, John, because of what we were talking about, we're running out of time, in fact. But um, are, yeah. there, there was a bloke called, there's a bloke called Clifford Hayes, who's a sustainable yeah. Australia MP um, yeah. in, in the state government. And he's, he's urging that they, he urged pub, free public transport, but then at le- he says right. at least they should have um, public transport for pensioners and, and children and um, mm. free travel for children, students, pensioners and seniors would be a great start. Um, now, he he argues that uh, that would cost $113.7 million, mm. um, but the government has just, just put up, that's $113.7 million, but the government has just, says it's too expensive, but they've just put up $1.9 billion to bail... Transurban out of the Westgate Tunnel problem, mm. which is much more than 113.7 million. Mm. Um, so they they seem to have some things are obviously more important. Yep, yep. Well, well, obviously, you know, um, even though governments of those persuasions have got better, you know, acknowledging public transport's important. I'm afraid you don't have to look very deep into their um, deliberations to find, you know, the car is still. The car is still king mm. in, their, in their thinking, um, and even you know, even even electric cars don't necessarily float their boat very very much either. Um, there are other states who are doing more for electric cars than Victoria is, which I find a bit surprising, but that's the case. Uh, yes, but you know, the great Paul Paul Mees of, of um, you know times past. He um, he argued that public transport shouldn't be free. He didn't argue that it shouldn't be cheap, but he argued that it had to be had to be paid. You know, people had to pay something to use it because if it was free, governments then had the excuse of saying, "Well, you know, it's free. We don't have to do anything about improving it. You know, we can just we could, we've got an excuse to just let it um, let it be. You know, at the at the fairly um, basic level it's at at the moment." Oh, that's interesting. But I mean, yeah. like, it would still um, essentially be like being paid for by people because it would be like from yeah. people's taxes. So that's r- that's right. But he, I, I guess I guess Paul's argument was that you know people should be seen to be putting some some you know some payment into into the into the system. Yeah, mm. uh, I'm not I'm not don't know quite where I stand stand on that. If, if if it was a government that you could trust to do the right thing by public transport, I'd argue that, you know, making it free wouldn't be, wouldn't be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. Mm. Well, uh, you make great, I mean, you do make savings in other areas in pollution, in health and all those areas. Well, that's right. There, there's lots of areas where you'd actually save by doing mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. uh, but, but I think there is argument for um, with, along with Paul, I think there is argument for a low fare system, but, you know, mm-hmm. keep it low. Well, people, people's perceptions are about using public transport, you know, versus the car, are, 
are um, you know based on just what the running costs are. You know, so that's you know the fare they have to pay on their on their Metcard versus uh, um, um, you know putting petrol in the car. You know, they don't really look at the overall costs of, of running their car versus you know versus the the Mikey the Mikey fare. You know, it's it's um, it, it's uh, not. People don't work it out that way, and of course they don't take any notice of the environmental, in, in, you know, benefits of, of mm-hmm. using PT at all. Most most people don't, anyhow, because it doesn't occur to them that their car puts out noise and um, and um, pollution out the tailpipe and um, bits of rubber rubbing off the tyres. John, I've just looked at the clock and I realised we're we're run right up against wow, the we? clock, aren't we? So, okay. um, look, we'll have to go. But look, thanks for that, sure. and we'll do more of this next month. Yes. More of the same. Okay, thanks, John. Okay, bye, everybody. There and, uh, Zeb, thanks for doing wonderful things, keeping us on air. And let's thank Karina for doing her. She made a major contribution to the first half of the show today. Yeah, thanks, Karina, wherever you are. <laughs> you've disappeared now. <laughs> okay, next week, by the way, Dr. Paddy Moriarty, um, Associate Professor out at Monash, he's going to talk to us about lithium and uh, whether uh, the cure is better or worse than the bite in terms of... Uh, its contribution to climate change and environment. Mm, that'll be interesting. Mm. We'll catch you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.